Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 16. Luke chapter number 16 and beginning at verse number 1. I preached four or five messages this week from the Gospel of Luke. I mentioned that to my wife tonight. I didn't mean to. It just seemed to happen that way. And today the Lord directed me this way. I also want you to turn to Joshua chapter number 6. And uh, hold your finger in Joshua chapter number 6. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for this opportunity to assemble. I pray that tonight you would receive glory in your church. I pray that you would use me to preach the word of God and that the preaching would be in power and in demonstration of the Holy Ghost. I pray, Father, that it would not be in the flesh. I pray, Father, committing this work to you, expecting you to establish my thoughts, for you promised to do that, and I claim that. And then, Father, I pray that by the preaching of the word tonight, you would perfect that which is lacking in our faith. Make us strong, strengthen us, settle us, and help us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, in your work, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in uh, Luke chapter number 16. And the scripture says in verses 1 and 2, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Now, in this parable, all of us are represented as being stewards of that which we possess in this world. You see, you've got to understand that we do not own anything. We possess that which belongs to God. I don't own a thing in this world. I belong to God, and all that I possess belongs to God. So that makes me a steward. That makes you a steward. In Psalm 24, 1 we read, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In Psalm 100, verse 3 we read, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof the world, and they that dwell therein. So it all belongs to God. Everything belongs to God, including you and me. And I contend that you will never be what you ought to be until you get this simple truth settled you don't own anything. Everything belongs to God, so that makes you a steward. A steward is one who manages the affairs and accounts of another. I have things, I have affairs, I have accounts, I have possessions, but they all belong to God, and I'm to manage those things for the glory of God. Now, furthermore, we learn from this passage of Scripture that the steward is accountable to his Lord, and someday will be judged by his Lord. In other words, there will come a day when you and I will have to stand before the Lord and give an accounting of our stewardship. It all belongs to him and we belong to him and we're going to have to stand before him and give an accounting of what we did with our lives and what we did with those possessions 
uh, those things which the Lord put in our possession. Now, the problem addressed in this parable is that the steward wasted his master's goods. The idea that he wasted them means that he did not use them to the benefit of his master. Rather, he squandered them. And it's key to understand that. He squandered them. That means that he spent that which belonged to his master lavishly and without necessity. That's what's behind the word wasted. Lavishly and without necessity. And think about that for a minute. The Lord has put certain things in your possession. All that you have, he has put in your possession. Do you use them for the glory of God? Could it be that you're lavish in some ways? Could it be that you use that which really belongs to God for things that are not necessary? Wasting your master's goods? Now, I, I don't mean to, uh, I don't mean to get across that we can't have nice things and be taken care of comfortably. The Lord takes care of me and I'm comfortable and the Lord provides me with nice things and he will you too. But we've got to be careful. We're stewards of that which belongs to the Lord and we want to be careful to know that those things which we go after are his will. So the primary use of that which we possess is for the advancement of his kingdom. Our possessions are to be used to the benefit of God. They are to be used to advance his work in this world. And if that which he has placed in our care is squandered on things which are unnecessary, then we have wasted our master's goods. I'm saying that our possessions, which are indeed his goods, are to be used for his glorification, not our gratification. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. This teaches us that the chief requirement of a steward is faithfulness, and faithfulness speaks of loyalty. It speaks of firm adherence to duty. It speaks of the performance of promises. Any steward who lacks these qualities would be an unfaithful steward and will suffer loss at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this really becomes important as we consider our stewardship in the matter of tithing and giving. You see, tithing proves your honesty. The tithe is the Lord's. The Bible is very clear about that. The tithe belongs to God. Therefore, it's to be paid. It's not a gift. It's to be paid. So when you tithe, it proves your honesty. Giving, that is, gifts given to the Lord over and above the tithe. There's no giving until the tithe's paid. And then when we give gifts to the Lord over and above the tithe, it proves the sincerity of our love. 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. I want you to consider tonight over in Joshua chapter number 6, the sin of Achan. Consider the sin of Achan. Now, as we approach the book of Joshua, we understand that Israel had completed their wilderness wanderings, and the promise made by God to Abraham is after all those centuries of waiting, about to be fulfilled in its initial stages. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam have all died. 
As a matter of fact, that generation of men who had left Egypt and failed to enter the promised land because of unbelief some 40 years prior to this time had all died. So we have a new leader, we have a new generation, and that new leader is Joshua. Now in chapter number 6, the Lord gave Joshua instructions. Look at it. Instructions for the defeat of Jericho. It says, now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. So the inhabitants of Jericho were shut up inside the walls. They were afraid to go out because of Israel. It says in verse 2, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. So there's the battle, the, the, the battle plan. Here's the plan for the battle, for the war against Jericho, the conquest of Jericho. Now, it doesn't really sound a bit reasonable. It doesn't sound reasonable at all. I mean, walk around the city, walk around the city, walk around the city, blow the horn, shout, and you're going to win the battle. That does not sound reasonable except to those of us who know the Lord through saving faith. It sounds reasonable to us. You see, those of us who know the Lord understand that the method for accomplishing this victory was based on the faith of God's people in the words of God. That faith in the words of God, and they would obey God, and they'd have the victory. Here they faced a great city, which was a strategic stronghold, which could involved the loss of a great number of lives. But God says, compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once, thus shalt thou do six days. And uh, God said, uh, when he said compass the city, the idea was to walk or march around the perimeter of the city. Then he tells them that seven priests are to take the uh, ram's horns before the ark of God and compass the city seven times on the seventh day, blow the trumpets, all the people are to shout, and the walls of that fortified city will come down. So I say again, that just doesn't sound reasonable. But it's not meant to be reasonable. It's meant to demonstrate to the people of God the ability of their God, Almighty God, by his infinite power to defeat their enemies when they trust him and obey his words. That's what this thing is about. And that's something that all of us need to understand. We need to put our faith in him and obey his words. And there will be blessings. There will be victories. Now, did you know that archaeologists have determined that Jericho sat on a mound and was surrounded by walls, an inner wall and an outer wall? And just the outer wall alone was some four stories high. Forty feet high, 40 feet above where those Israelites would have stood when they compassed the city. And there was a, a second inner wall, uh, the, the big wall, the outside wall, 
was made of uh, stone, and then up top of the stone was brick. And, and the thing, it was a massive fortress, 40 feet tall. My point is that, humanly speaking, this was an indestructible fortification. Now, isn't it obvious to you that God brought his people to this great city first in order to show them what he could do when they looked to him and obeyed his words? Absolutely. So the Bible tells us that God brought the walls down and the Israelites took the city and destroyed the substance and all who were in the city they destroyed. But, and notice, verse number 1 of chapter 7, but all of this great victory, but the children of Israel, verse 1, chapter 7, committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now notice that the verse says the children of Israel committed a trespass. And it goes on to say that God's anger was kindled against who? The children of Israel. You need to observe and learn something here. One person was in sin. It was Achan who committed the sin, but God charged the whole body of the Israelites with the sin. You see, when there was sin in the camp, the whole camp was charged with it. We need to learn this as a church. Why was the whole body charged? Because it is the responsibility of the body of people to find out the one committing the sin and deal with that person. And if that is not done, then the entire body of people will suffer. Hence, we should learn from this that we dare not tolerate sin in Christ's body, the church. It always needs to be dealt with. So that brings us to this. How is sin in the body dealt with? Well, first of all, there is chastening. This goes to church discipline, and it starts with chastening, which begins with preaching. God uses the preaching of the word to rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine, 2 Timothy 4.2. You see, chastening, in this respect, begins with preaching. And as you are convicted by the preaching of the word of God of some private sin, then what you need to do is get that matter right with God, and that's the end of it. You're under conviction about something, you're the only one that's aware of it. Get alone and get right with God, and that's the end of it. It doesn't need to go public. It doesn't need to go any further. However, if we fail to respond to the Lord in repentance and others in the body become aware of our sin, then, number two, there needs to be a confronting. A confronting. When we know that a fellow church member has turned aside and is not doing right, then Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, Galatians 6.1. The one overtaken in a fault would be a person who has given into temptation, hence has deviated from the path of righteousness and holy living. I would assume 
that this person did not deliberately set out to commit this sin. I'm going to assume that because it is contrary to the character of a Christian to sin intentionally. Those who would sin because grace would abound. God will cover it. They're no Christians. Christians, it's contrary to their character to sin intentionally. Now, I surmise that he didn't plan and then intentionally go that direction. However, as a man is tempted, he may, in his lack of discretion and in stubbornness and recklessness, be overtaken in a fault. So what we are dealing with here is a man who has been tempted and drawn aside into sin. And Paul says, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And this means that we are to tenderly and to carefully and with a great deal of patience confront that person about his or her sin as we seek to restore that person to his or her former place or standing. And that's what church discipline is all about, is restoration. We want to see people restored. Next, there also needs to be a confronting when another church member has offended you. A fellow member of the body. The idea is that that person has injured you personally. In some way he or she has done you wrong and offended you. Then Jesus said in Matthew eighteen fifteen, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. That's the next step. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And this would teach us that, number three, thirdly, there are times when a church member needs to be excluded from the body. There are times when that needs to be done. When a church member in either of these instances, that is, number one, has been overtaken in a fall and refuses to be restored, continuing in sin, or number two, refuses to hear the church over an offense, there is no other option but to release by exclusion that member from the body of Christ, the local church. And the Bible's clear that when this is done, it involves withdrawal of fellowship on all levels. All ties at that point are to be broken so that the offender will be shamed and hopefully get right with the church and with God. Now, is any of that kind of thing fun? Is confrontation fun? No, it's not fun. But what I've shared with you is biblical. It's the right thing to do. It's biblical. It's outlined for us in the Bible. So it is something that is to absolutely be done. Now, Achan here trespassed, and the whole body of people we said were affected. They were to find out the sin and deal with it, and then and only then could they enjoy the blessing of Jehovah God whose desire it is to bless them. You know what God wants to bless his people? It pleases God to see his people blessed. 
Someone wrote these words, quote, God is pleased when we're pleased. He wills that we be free as birds to soar and sing his praises without anxiety. Amen. God is pleased to bless his people. Now back to chapter number 7. The time that all of this in chapter number 7 takes place is shortly following the great victory at Jericho. They enjoyed this great inconceivable victory, but in record time they'll go from the mountaintop of victory to the valley of defeat because of Achan's trespass. The trespass, he took that which belonged to God. Think about that. He took that which belonged to God. He took a thing which had been devoted to destruction by God, and he took some things that were to be brought into God's treasury, and he hid these under his tent floor. You see, God had laid claim to certain things which were to be brought into his treasury. It says in chapter 6, verse number 19, But all the silver, when they conquered Jericho, all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So Achan took some silver, a wedge of gold, and some clothing and hid these things together under the floor of his tent. The silver and gold were to be set apart for God and brought into God's treasury, and the clothing was supposed to be utterly destroyed. Now as a result of Achan's sin... When Israel goes out to battle against the city of Ai, they go without God's blessing. Joshua had sent spies to Ai, and they had determined that it would only be necessary to send a fighting force of two to 3,000. They sent 3,000 on the heavy side. It should have been more than enough to obtain the victory, but they were turned to flight. There was no victory. God's people were chased by their enemies. What an awful thing. Thirty-six good men lost their lives unnecessarily. They were defeated by a lesser enemy because they no longer had the blessing of God. Now, church, you know the truth. We will not be blessed unless we are walking in the Spirit. And we will not walk in the Spirit when sin is not confronted, dealt with, and repented of. The trespass was this. Achan took of the accursed thing. God had said that the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron were to come into the treasury of the Lord. According to chapter number 6 and verse number 17, Jericho was accursed to the Lord. The word accursed signifies that it was devoted to God. The silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron were to be brought into God's treasury and everything else destroyed. None of the property of the people of Jericho was to be taken by the children of Israel. None of it. Jericho was devoted to the Lord as the first fruits of Canaan. So the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron were to be received into the treasury of the Lord as the first fruits of the land. This is the first conquest. So God says, it's mine, it's my tithe. The first fruits. This was the first city conquered, and God was to receive the spoil as his tithe. It's to be brought into the treasury of the Lord. Now, there are a few lessons to be learned here. 
First of all, that which is devoted to God is absolutely forbidden you and me to fail to pay God's tithe by not bringing it into the treasury of the Lord because the tithe is the Lord's is devoted to him is sin. I can't tell you how many times over the years that I have known people who for one reason or another kept back part of the Lord's tithe to use as they saw fit. Some thought that they would use that extra 10%, stop tithing, and use that extra 10% to get out of debt, debt which they had created. So they're going to rob God, take God's tithe, and try to dig themselves out of debt. That's absurd. There's no blessing in that. It's just not going to work. The tithe is the Lord's. Then I had a church member tell me one time that he was going to save up his tithe. Actually, it was a deacon. And I'm meeting in a, I'm meeting in a room with these deacons. I think there were seven of them uh, in my church in Pennsylvania. And I was fairly new there, probably my first year. And uh, this deacon on the second or third row back, he says, Pastor, he said, uh, I've been saving up my tithe before. Well, we'd like to build a garage. I want to build a garage for the church to park the two vans in so they don't sit outside all the time. So I've been saving my tithe, and I'm going to build a garage for the church with it. That's absurd. You don't withhold that which God has claimed for his treasury. He's claimed it for his treasury. You don't hold it and then choose what you'll do with it. That is not biblical thinking at all. And then on another occasion, I had a married couple inform me that they had saved their tithe and purchased a new piano for the church. Now, I was starting a church in Laconia, New Hampshire. They hadn't been there long. I'm trying to train these people. And these people come up to me on a Sunday morning. How do you handle this? We're in a we're in a nice building that we had rented, and uh, we've got a room that'll seat about 70 people. And there are quite a few people there. There are probably 50 people there. And, and they come up to talk to me right here in the front of the church. I think it was before the morning service. And uh, this young fellow and his wife, oh, I suppose they're in their 30s, uh, they're just beaming. Pastor, here's a receipt. We bought the church a piano. We had a few thousand dollars in tithe money. And so we went down to Concord and we bought the church a piano and all you have to do is call this number and they'll deliver it whenever you want them to. Now, what do you say to a young couple from all these people you're trying to train? About the only thing you can say is something like this. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Hey, you know what I want you to do? Would you two come over to our house tomorrow night for dinner? Had dinner with Miss Mitchell May. Yeah. So they came over the next night, or maybe it was Tuesday night, but we had dinner, and I took them to my study, and I showed them what God had to say about the tithe. You know what happened? They got it. Sometimes you try to do that. People will just walk away. Do anything to do with you anymore. They got it. They said, yeah, wow, we can see it. Okay, man, we made a mistake. What should we do? I said, well, 
Go back down there. Get your money back. Put your tithe in the church offering. And they did. And then that next Sunday when they brought that check, I asked them if I could share all this with the church. Because I said it would be a great object lesson. And we all need to know this. And they said, sure. So I got up and I even held the check and I told the church about it. Told the church what they did and what we talked about and how they got it. And we put the church or put the check in the church offering it came into the Lord's treasury. And then I turned around within a week or so and led the church by a piano. <laughs> but it was done right. See, it wasn't done wrong. It was done right. To withhold any part of the tithe to use as you deem fit will result in trouble. Absolute trouble, to say the least. It will result in disaster. The tithe is devoted to God and is absolutely forbidden us. It's just that simple. Secondly, to withhold that which God has designated as his is a treacherous act. Quite a strong word. It's a treacherous act. God has designated a tenth of that which comes to us as his tithe. So a tenth of all of our gross income or gifts, other things that come to us, business, profits, and so on, is his. It's to be brought to him. It's to be brought into his house, placed in his treasury. Paying our tithes and giving our gifts, I hope you understand, is an act of worship. That's why I prefer the passing of offering plates, so we can participate in the offering rather than uh, say a box. I've been in some churches that have a box in the back with a little hole in it, and you come in at any time you want to. You just place your offering in it while you're standing around talking to other people and so on. But because our giving, our tithe of our tithes and our offerings is an act of worship, I like to make it a part of the worship service. You see, by our actions, when we bring our tithes and our love gifts and that plate is passed, and we put them in that plate, we are declaring him to be worthy. And that's worship. comes from a couple of old English words, worth, W-E-R-T-H, I think it is, Skype. It has to do with worship. That's worship, declaring God to be worthy. Now, on the other hand, I said withholding the tithe is a treacherous act. The Bible says in verse 1 here, that they committed a trespass. You see, withholding that which is designated as belonging to God would be a trespass. And the idea behind the word translated trespass is an unfaithful or treacherous act against God. They committed a trespass. A treacherous act against God. In other words, it's downright rebellious to withhold the tithe. It's a violation of faith and confidence in God when we do such a thing. Now then, the rest of chapter 7 deals with Achan being exposed and destroyed and God being satisfied, his anger averted. Achan and all his family are destroyed because of his sin. That ought to teach us that our sin affects others. Our sin greatly affects others. It affected Israel. I mean, they, they lost those soldiers in the battle. They lost the next battle at A.E., I said, and, and uh, then he loses his family. You can't sin without affecting others. 
You can't sin and get by, we learn as well. You just can't sin and get by. You can't get away with it. In Galatians 6, 7, the Holy Spirit reveals to us an unalterable law. Unalterable. His words are these. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. God will not be mocked, meaning that he will not be deceived or deluded. Such a thing is impossible. He knows all things, and he will not be mocked. You cannot go against God's commandments and get away with it. As a believer, how could you possibly think that that would even be possible? There are many examples in God's word of people who didn't get away with sin. Hordes of people all down through the centuries have learned that you can't get away with sin, and you and I are not going to be the first to get away with sin. It's not going to happen. This is an unalterable law. It's true what Moses said when he warned the two and a half tribes in Numbers 32. He said, be sure your sin will find you out. And it always does. So how does all of this apply to us? Well, Achan robbed God when he kept some of the tithe. Malachi said, will a man rob God? Well, God said that in Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? See, God says, you've robbed me. They say, wherein have we robbed thee to God? And he gives the answer, in tithes and offerings. That's what the Bible says. To hold back the tithe or any part of it is stealing from God. So be warned, you will not get away with it. It just will not work out for you. That's the warning. It just it just won't work out for you. Now, I got a few more minutes. So number two, let's consider the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter number five. Look at them for the few minutes we have left. Acts chapter number five. In the closing verses of chapter number four, we learn that the church was enjoying the blessing of the presence and power of God And as a result, they were speaking the word of God, verse 31 says, with boldness. Also, verse 33 says that great grace was upon them all. That's in chapter 4. Then we learn in that same passage that those who owned land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles for distribution in order that other church members' needs might be met. Also, during that time, Barnabas sold land, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet for distribution by these pastors to the poor and needy members. So all of that establishes the context. Then we read in chapter 5, but, here we go with another but. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira with his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here we learn that this couple sold a piece of land and brought a portion of the proceeds of that sale to the church. Now observe here that while it would usually be a good thing if somebody sold, let's say, a piece of land and and, uh, paid the tithe on the profit, but then brought another gift to the church, part of what they sold the land for, usually that would be a good thing. 
and God would normally bless such giving. The problem here was that these two conspired to deceive the church by indicating that they were giving all of the proceeds of the sale, just as Barnabas did. So they led the church to believe that they were giving not a portion, but all that they collected from the sale of the land. Verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Now notice that the lie, the deception in this thing originated with Satan. The origin of deception, the origin of any lie is Satan. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, and listen to me, when you tell a lie, or when you seek to deceive, you are empowered by Satan to do so. I'm telling you, it's a wicked thing to lie or to deceive. When you tell a lie, you are doing the work of Satan, who is a father of all lies. He emboldens you to do it. And he emboldened this couple to lie. Peter says in verse 4, Whilst it remained, was it not thine own, that land? It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? You could have done with it what you wanted to. But you see, the problem was he tried to lead the church to believe he was giving all the money to the church. So Peter says, Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. Did you sell it for this much, what Ananias said? She said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of them which have buried thy husband. This is the first she knew, that her husband had died and been buried. Are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Verse 10, Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Now, I believe that verse number 11 makes it crystal clear that the purpose of God in the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira was accomplished. His purpose was twofold. Number one, to expose and eliminate hypocrites in that church thus causing all to fear. And number two, to cause that the people would know that undermining the purity of God's church, that body of Christ, the local church, by such acts of hypocrisy, will result in God's wrath. Now there are two things that we need to observe and learn from this account of Ananias and Sapphira. They are, suppose I, or there are, I suppose, uh, you know, a myriad of things we can learn from it, but a couple of things that I had put down for tonight. Number one, they lied to the church, and lying is synonymous with lying to God. Lying to the church is synonymous with lying to God. Peter said in 
Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? They lied to the church. But he said, why hath, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Again, he said in verse 4, thou hast not lied unto men. He lied to men, but it was the church. Peter says, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So they lied to the church, and lying to the church is synonymous with lying to God. Number two, they defiled the church by their deceptive act, and all, all who defile the church of the living God will be destroyed. They have to understand what that word destroyed means. I don't mean to say that what actually happened to Ananias and Sapphira will happen to everyone who defiles the Lord's church, but I do mean that all who defile God's church will be judged. That's clear. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, If any man defile the temple of God. Now there, where he speaks of the temple of God, it's, uh, it's not a man's body, but it is the New Testament church. The Greek word uses naos, the naos of God, signifying the holy of holies, or the dwelling place of God, the church which is his body. If any man defile the temple of God, the church which is his body, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye, see, collectively, that's plural, which temple ye, the church of God at Corinth, are. Now it's interesting that the two words, defile and destroy, are translated from the same Greek word. In the mind of a Jew during that day, to defile a thing was to destroy it. So the idea here is that if you move against the church, that is, if you do anything to debase the pureness of Christ's church, then God will move against you. You move against the church, and God will move against you. The idea is, hurt his church, and you're going to be hurt. And I've seen it over and over again. In 45 years of pastoring, I've seen it over and over again. Somebody trying to disrupt God's church, and God disrupts them, I'll tell you that. You can see it just as plain as can be. Youth department presents me with a cowboy hat years ago. Sent someplace, Wyoming or someplace, for a cowboy hat. Made out of beaver fur, so it wasn't cheap. So one of the dads of a couple of the teenagers that really bugs him that they gave me a cowboy hat. So he gets all upset about it, and in front of others he approaches me and says, that money shouldn't have been spent on that, and blah, blah. These kids gave it as a gift. They, they collected money, and they wanted to do something for their pastor. And they loved me. And so he made trouble, and he tried to disrupt the church. It wasn't long before his wife met another man. And his family was disrupted. He tried to tear up the church. God tore up his home. And before it was over, his children, his teenage children, sided against him and wouldn't have anything to do with him. What a mess. And I've seen that kind of thing happen. It's an awful thing. I'm saying that uh, you move against God's church, and God will move against you. Hurt his church, and you're going to be hurt. Now, in the case of Achan, in Judges 6 and 7, the judgment of God followed the withholding of the tithe. 
which belonged to God and was due him. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts 4 and 5, the judgment of God followed the withholding of a gift promised. Think about that. A gift promised. And they withheld it. And they suffered the judgment of God. Withholding the tithe or any part of it is, a, is the sin of robbing God. And giving, as I said when I started out, is that which is brought in the offering over and above the tithe. The tithe is to be paid. It belongs to God. It proves your honesty. A gift is over and above the tithe. And it proves, when you give gifts to God over and above the tithe, it proves the sincerity of your love. 